0: Alright, will you please stand with me in honor of reading God's word? Uh, We're in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him.
1: Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to study your word. We thank you that... We have the Bible in front of us in an easy-to-understand translation. We thank you for um, the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. As we come to Palm Sunday and Easter in the next several weeks, may we um, pause to remember what you did on the cross for us, taking our sin upon yourself. Jesus, thank you. Father, we pray that you would illuminate your word this morning. May you speak through me, may I speak accurately and truthfully, and would you help everyone here to um, see what you have for us in this passage. We thank you for this opportunity, we thank you for this church. God, would you bless the reading and the studying of your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed, or you may not have noticed, the title to today's sermon is a little different. People are rustling through their worship folders. Uh, I I titled the sermon this morning, Jesus Has a Posse. Um, Now, I was informed that for the older people in the congregation, that this would conjure up images of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood gathering a bunch of guys in a town in the Old West to go grab an outlaw. Um, I looked up on urbandictionary.com, which is an authoritative source, and uh, I was using posse in the sense that I have learned it, Um, this is what urbandictionary.com says. A posse is your crew, your homies, a group of friends, people who may or may not have your back. (laughs) The may or may not part was a little interesting. Then I looked in the dictionary for the official word, and I don't even know how to say this, but I think it's posse comitatis or comitatus. And this is what this one means. The able-bodied men of a district assembled together and forming a group upon whom the sheriff may call for assistance in maintaining law and order. So, words change. Um, The way I was looking at it was, uh, in this passage we see Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He forms a posse. Um, Maybe if we want to think about it, of uh, calling on assistance to go get the gospel out. Um, but that's what I want to look at today. You'll notice after the colon, it says the strategy of discipleship. Uh, a lot of times we read the, the Gospels, and we just read through them and see the stories and remember coloring those when we were in third grade, and we don't see the, the whole thing developing. We don't see the plot of the story, and we, we don't see Jesus' strategic um, calling of his disciples and then sending them out and the way he's working, even as he leads up to the cross. So that's what I want to to talk about today. You'll notice if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, there are no red letters in today's passage. Okay, so so in this passage, Mark does not record Jesus as saying any specific quotes, but we do learn a lot about what is going on with Jesus. You also may wonder, as you flip through your Bible, have we covered the passages before this? And the answer is No. (laughs) With the way that um, sermon scheduling went, we have not covered chapter 2, verse 18, through 3, verse 6. Pastor Ron will get back to those after um, Easter. So we're kind of fast-forwarding a little bit, and I know half of you are going to read those passages now while I'm preaching to catch up. Basically, what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, if you haven't been with us or if you're visiting today, we've seen Jesus coming to earth as a man The book of Mark is does not contain anything about Jesus' birth. does not contain any genealogies. It is the gospel of action. It's the shortest gospel, and the key word is immediately. You know, a fun thing you might want to do is go through the book of Mark later and underline all the times that immediately is used. Now, the word is used, I think, 42 times in the book of Mark and rarely in the rest of the gospels. But Mark is a storyteller. It's boom, 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 story to story to story. He excludes a lot of the teaching of Jesus. There's no Sermon on the Mount here. There's a lot of other things that Mark decides to leave out and he's pointing out the action of Jesus. We've also seen Jesus be baptized by John the Baptizer. We have seen him be led into the wilderness to be tempted. We've seen him beginning his ministry preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We see him begin to heal and to cast out demons to preach. He's in the region of Galilee And he is creating quite quite a ruckus. Um, If you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 45. Chapter 1, verse 45. Just a little review. Mark says about Jesus, but he went out and began to talk freely about, I mean about the man who was healed. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So this man that Jesus heals, Jesus says don't tell anybody, he disobeys and tells everybody, and Jesus begins to attain celebrity status. So if you look at your notes that are provided, the first point today is Jesus the celebrity. Jesus the celebrity. Um, I, I don't think I've ever watched TMZ, which I think is a good thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a show dedicated to celebrities and the cult of celebrity in America. We want to know everything that our celebrities are doing or not doing. Um, this has much to do with paparazzi. It has much to do with half the magazines at the grocery checkout. This is uh, Celebrity America. And you know, it wasn't much different in first century Israel. People are flocking to Jesus Because he was associated with this weird guy, John the Baptizer, out in the wilderness, and now he's doing crazy things, healing people, casting out demons, and he's gathering crowds. So you'll see um, in verse 7 of our passage this morning, of Mark chapter 3, that Jesus um, withdraws. He withdraws. In the previous passage that we'll study in a few weeks, he's in the synagogue and he heals a man on the Sabbath. And immediately he withdraws, From the synagogue. So, letter A in your notes is Jesus can't escape the crowds. He can't escape the crowds. He withdraws with his disciples to the sea in verse 7, and a great crowd followed. So, he tries to get out of the synagogue, which is probably packed full of people, and he leaves the synagogue and goes to the Sea of Galilee, which is just a short walk, and all the people follow. So, speculation is why did Jesus just go to the beach? It's not that big a difference. Well, it may make a difference with the open sea there's a beach there's plenty of sight lines when you're in the city, there are crowded streets, and we know that Jesus has been piling up enemies against him. So Jesus withdraws with his disciples you'll You'll notice here secondly in uh, point B in your notes, Jesus attracts Jews and Gentiles. Jesus attracts Jews and Gentiles. Mark puts this in here. On purpose. Look at the end of verse 7. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan from around Tyre and Sidon. Now this is huge. You could just gloss over that because there are names you don't really understand or know and so let's just keep moving, right? This is actually incredibly important. Jesus is a Jew. He lives in Galilee and he ministers to Jews. He goes to the synagogue. He follows the law And yet, we see Gentiles begin to flock to him. Just in order to help you out here, if we can um, get up the PowerPoint, I have a map here that can uh, help you to maybe visualize a little better what is going on in this chapter and where Jesus is and where the crowds are that follow. Up top, you'll see in a red circle to help you see where it is. Jesus is in Galilee, okay? Jesus is in Galilee. Here's the sea. Jesus is basically camping out on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, It's kind of a little more backwoods, kind of a little more rural, kind of a little more easy way of life. It's not the big city. Um, And this is where Jesus, we first see, is gathering a great crowd from Galilee. Where else is he gathering from? Well, he's also gathering from Judea, right here, down here in the south. And underneath Judea, we see that he's also gathering people from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, of course, is the capital of Israel. It's a very large city for the times. And you see that people now are not just coming from the surrounding area, not just coming from the county, they're coming from out of county. They are traveling distances to see Jesus. We also see that people are coming from Idumea, which is here in the south. Now, Idumea, we don't hear much about, but it is the ancient uh, nation of Edom. The Edomites, who we see all the time in the Old Testament, who are descended from Esau. And these, uh, this nation was converted forcefully, um, a hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, made to be circumcised, made to be Jews. Um, they're kind of in this, not quite a Jew, but not quite a Samaritan category, kind of in between these. And so people are coming from Idumea. Idumea itself, as we will see here, is about 120 miles away. Jacob, next one, please. There you go. Next one. 120 miles travel. Now, to us, that's climbing in a car and driving for two hours. Some of you, that's an hour and a half. Okay? 120 miles back then is going to be four days to a week's travel, on foot or on the back of a donkey, um, traveling Uh, in probably not this straight of a line, probably going across the Jordan so as to avoid Samaria and come up to the north to follow Jesus. Next, we see that from beyond the Jordan, people are coming. You see this place called Perea. Perea was a Jewish province on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, I didn't circle it, but you also see Decapolis here. Decapolis is a mainly Gentile region. Ten cities, Decapolis, ten cities, Um, that existed mostly on the east side of the Jordan, and very few Jews lived there. It wasn't a place that a Jew could find a synagogue very well. Um, It wasn't a place that was well looked upon by the Jews. But people are coming from across the Jordan. And last, we hear that people are coming from Tyre and Sidon. And Sidon's not even on the map. Sidon's like up here. (laughs) Okay, Tyre and Sidon are clearly, definitely, without a doubt, Gentile territories. They are the ancient city, the ancient uh, nation of Phoenicia. Um, it's where now in modern day Lebanon. And people are flocking from all over to see Jesus. They want to get close to him. This is very interesting. Jesus becomes basically an international uh, phenomenon on a smaller scale. But still, there are people coming from all over to hear and to see Jesus. So this is incredible. As Jesus becomes a celebrity, he's gathering the peoples from all around who want to come and see him. Look down at verse 8. When the great crowd in Greek, that's talking about a much multitude, a big, big group of people flowing out of the synagogue and the streets around the synagogue, flocking to the beach, it would be as if if Pastor Ron were preaching and he walks out the side door after his sermon. Everyone gets up, people from the apartments, and we're all following him. This is what's going on with Jesus. Everyone is flocking. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Verse 9, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Okay, this This is not an orderly, everyone in single file kind of Slowly walking. Um, this is a crush. This is a mosh pit. This is people, um, desperate. Now, the people that we see that are coming to Jesus, we've seen a few verses, are are not, for the most part, the upper class. They're not the rich. Um, there's going to be people there that have broken limbs. There's going to be people there that can't see. There's going to be people there that have um, oozing wounds. There's going to be people that have leprosy. It's going to be a crowded, smelly, gross, disgusting crowd pressing. And Jesus is afraid that he's going to be crushed. So as a backup plan, he gets close to the water and he says, guys, get a, get a boat ready for me. I don't think they're going to follow me into the water. <laughs> okay, so there's this plan and we'll see in about a month as Pastor Ron preaches that he actually does this later on as he gets in a boat and sits in the boat and teaches to the people on the land so they can't all um, crush him. I have, a, I have a picture here of an ancient boat that is um, from the time of Jesus. You can kind of see this. It is a first century AD boat that they found um, in the Sea of Galilee when the water level went down. Um, some archaeologists is having to poking around and hit some wood. And they, this elaborate archaeological dig got this boat out of the sea. Now, this is the remnants of it. You can see this if you go with us to Israel in 2013. It's right in a museum on the shore. Go to the next picture. And this is, if you can see it, the sun's going down over Galilee. But this is a model based on the boat that they found and some other information that they have. It's not a large boat. You can't get too many people in this boat. But this is what is basically anchored offshore as Jesus tries to escape the crowds, tries to get some distance, get some room from the crowds. So they have this boat. The disciples have a boat ready for him. Verse 10. For he he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Okay, that's easy to read. Let's use our imaginations. All who had diseases, okay? This is disgusting. There's lepers, there's people with chicken pox, there's people with, I don't know, all kinds of diseases pressing up around trying to get close to Jesus so they can just touch him, okay? If you've got a great multitude trying to touch one man, it is going to be an interesting scene. Okay, I mean, if the paparazzi existed, they'd be all over this with their cell phone cameras and the cameras out trying to get all these pictures of the people crowding around Jesus. It is an out-of-control scene. We see also that in verse 8, the reason they are coming is because they heard all that he was doing. Um, the commentators know that in the Greek, this passage, this phrase really points to, they heard what he was doing. It's an emphasis on what he was doing, not on what he was preaching. Um, so they hear the spectacular results of healings and demons coming out of people. If you saw a demon come out of someone, you would probably want to see it again and again. And if you knew a guy who had a, an, an unusable hand or a club foot and you knew them all your life and they go to Jesus and they come back healed, you want to go check this guy out. You want to go see if this guy is for real. You want to crowd around him and see him. So we see that sometimes that the the people here um, they don't they don't come for the right reasons. They they are coming because they have heard what Jesus has done. So letter C is Jesus is followed for the wrong reasons. Jesus is followed for the wrong reasons. Go down to verse 11. We see also not only are the people clamoring to get around him, but here we also see that the the demon-possessed are there. So verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him. Now pause. Um, You can't see a spirit fall down. (laughs) So what this is implying is the spirit controlling, animating the body. The spirit is throwing the body down in front of Jesus. Very uh, interesting scene. So the bodies of the demon-possessed are falling down before Jesus, and they're crying out, You are the Son of God! Now, very interesting, this is true. (laughs) The demons are speaking truth. You are the Son of God. Very important thing. Now go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. Jesus' baptism, verse 11 He's baptized, the heavens open, the spirit descends like a dove, and a booming voice, I added that, a voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So God the Father here identifies his son. Jesus is my son. We see here the demons are recognizing the son of God. We've yet to see a human being recognize Jesus as the son of God. God the Father has recognized His Son, and the demons, the spirits, have recognized God, Jesus, as God, the Son. But no one else has. And so Jesus, here in verse 12, strictly orders them. It's a rebuke. He ordered them not to make Him known. And the reason here is, Jesus doesn't want the only people singing His praises, endorsing His ministry, to be demons. Right? How do you know this guy's the Son of God? Well, the demon-possessed guys say it. Right? That's not, that's not a ringing endorsement. You don't put that on the back of your, your new book. Right? Demon possessed guy said. That's not a helpful way to have your ministry verified. You know, how is God working at Village Bible Church? Well, the demons say that he is. Well, what are people saying? (laughs) And so we see this, this interesting absence of any human being recognizing Jesus for who he is. It seems that the human beings recognize Jesus as a healer and a miracle worker, and that's probably about it. He's doing fantastic things. And isn't that how we are? We flock to the outstanding, the amazing, the new, the shiny. And a lot of times we overlook the needy, the helpless, the not so spectacular. That's how it is in our spiritual lives. In order to be a consistent Christian, you have to do boring, sometimes, things. Spiritual disciplines are not exciting Yes, I get to give up food for a day. All right. I get to spend half an hour reading when I could be playing with my new iPod or playing on my Wii or my PlayStation. The ways of following Jesus are often boring and unspectacular. And I think that's part of what the crowds are missing. They see the spectacular things and they hang around. Maybe they hang around Jesus' teaching. They're sitting there going, all right, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. I want to see some crazy person falling on the ground and flopping around. I want to see someone who's been blind for their whole life be healed. I want to see the spectacular. And the message of the gospel is not in the spectacular. It's verified by the spectacular. Jesus' preaching is what is going to do the work. In fact, go back to Mark 1. Mark 1, verse 38. You remember, Ron preached on this last month. He has healed all kinds of people the night before, and he gets, they get up in the morning, and Jesus is gone. And all the people are there to be healed. And where's Jesus? He's out somewhere on a mountain, somewhere praying. And the disciples find him, What are you doing, Lord? We're selling tickets. There's a line. People want to be healed. And he says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Jesus says, I came to preach. I came to preach. So what Jesus, in essence, is doing here is not going back to town to heal people that need healing. You get that? There's people being brought to be healed, and Jesus says, no, let's go somewhere else. That's a little counterintuitive. But Jesus came to preach. He came to preach the gospel. So back to Mark 3. The demons are screaming out, you are the son of God. But in the next section, point number two, we see that Jesus is the sovereign mentor. Jesus, the sovereign mentor. So, point number one, Jesus is the celebrity. Point number two, and more importantly, Jesus is the sovereign mentor. Okay, verses 13 through 19. 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Where does Jesus go? This is, this is interaction time. Where did Jesus go? The mountain. the mountain. Jesus went to the mountain. And this is a theme in Mark. When, when Jesus does important things, when he does seismic changes in, in ministry, oftentimes he goes onto the mountain. So he goes to the mountain to pray. He goes to the mountain for the transfiguration. He goes to the mountain to teach over looking Jerusalem. He goes on to the mountain for lots of different things. If you go to Luke 6, you'll see in the parallel passage that the night before this happens, Jesus goes to the mountain and prays all night. He prays all night long in order to prepare for what he's about to do. So this is not merely an eeny, meeny, miny, mo." You, Peter, alright. All right. It's not Jesus choosing like that. Jesus prays for hours, asking for God's wisdom as he chooses these men. So, point uh, point A on your notes. Jesus called and chose his disciples. Jesus called and chose his disciples. It's very interesting to look at the wording here. Verse 13, he called to him those whom he desired, is what the ESV says says. In the Greek it's strong. It's, he summoned those he willed. He summoned those whom he willed. Now Jesus has been praying all night, asking the Father for wisdom, and then he gets up in the daytime and he summons those he wills. Now this is not please come to my party kind of thing. RSVP, say yes or no, or maybe. Okay? This is a summons come. I am a king. When the king calls you, you don't Say no, you don't resist, you prepare yourself, you look nice, and you go up here before the king. And that's the wording that Mark uses here, is that the king, Jesus, summons those whom he will. So Jesus chooses, and that's important because the guys that he chooses are not spectacular. Now if someone in our country today, choose any celebrity you want, if they were to choose to have their posse their homies they wouldn't go out to the street and pick the guy who's selling tacos at the taco stand um they wouldn't go and find the factory worker and have them hang out with them they wouldn't go find the guy working for the IRS and say hey come on over right they wouldn't go and do these things they would choose the beautiful okay they would choose the rich they would choose those who help their image look better so Jesus is not helping his image We've already seen that. He walks by the sea and he calls some fishermen. Then he calls a tax collector. We've seen that so far. Jesus is, is counterintuitive. His strategy is not what we would assume it to be. Jesus has thousands and thousands of people flocking to him and he doesn't choose those who have any influence over these thousands. He chooses those who are nothing. They're nobodies. And he calls them and he chooses them. He summons them. And we see, verse 14, why. This is the key point. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Point number one there is disciples are to be with Jesus. That's what he called them to do. Come be with me. Be with Jesus. Normally when we call someone, hey, come over here. What do you want me to do? What are we going to do? Jesus says, come here, be Be with me. In fact, turn to the book of Acts real quick. Acts 4. just love this passage. Acts 4. Soon after Pentecost, the church has exploded in growth. Jesus, I mean, sorry, well, Jesus through Peter and John has healed a lame beggar at the temple. You remember this story? I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Rise and walk. And the guy jumps up and he's jumping through the temple. And the religious leaders hear about it. And in Acts 4, they quiz these guys. They bring what are you doing? You're causing a ruckus. You're ruffling our feathers. We don't like it. Explain what you're doing. And in verses uh, 8 through 12, Peter responds to the question, whose power is this? And in verse 13, notice this. The, the unbelievers, the non-Christians say this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It was unmistakable that these guys had been with Jesus. The the Jesus that they had known for three years, that they had hated, that they had successfully killed, they thought, has been with these men. And these men have been with Jesus and it's rubbed off. And so they, they recognize these guys have been with Jesus. So the disciples, go back to Mark 3, are to be with Jesus. And I think this principle extends to us. We are to be with Jesus. Not merely do for Jesus, but be with Jesus. And this is exactly what our culture tempts us not to do. It tempts us not to be. It tempts us to do. Right? We are the overworked generation. We are the overtime generation. Work, um, work, 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 do, 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 do. But there's not a lot of be. Who are you? Who do you spend time with? It should be Jesus. Number two, disciples are to be sent by Jesus. They are to be sent by Jesus. So there's a logical um, progression made. Jesus calls them to be with him, and because they are with him, in the future he's going to send them And so the implication is you can only be sent if you be. Be with Jesus and then you will be sent. So look at verse 14. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So A and B in your notes are Jesus sent the twelve to preach. Okay, that's mentioned first on purpose. Jesus sent the twelve to preach. And B, Jesus sent the twelve to cast out demons. Now, he hasn't done that yet. He will, in the coming chapters as we read, he will send them out. And you'll notice in verse 14, you might have parentheses that say, whom he also named apostles. The word apostle in Greek just means sent one. Okay, it's like an envoy, someone who's sent. And that's the same verb that's used in the end of verse 14, that he might send them out. Apostolane, to send. They are sent out. Apostles. Okay, so they are sent out to preach, they're sent out to cast out demons. And then we get this list, and somehow I always get stuck with the list when I preach. So we're going to go through the list here quickly of the disciples. You, you know these guys, most of them. You've recognized some of these passages. Um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts, there are lists. None of the lists are exactly the same. We don't have time to talk about that today. But you'll see the guys that he called. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, is always first in the list. Simon. And Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means rock. Now, I looked at a graph this week. Someone made a graph of the Apostle Peter's ups and downs in the Gospels. So that the great times where he says, you are the Christ, right? And then in the same chapter, (laughs) Jesus calls him Satan. So that's a bad day for Peter after a good start. And you see the graph of Peter's life is up and down, up and down. He's clearly not a rock, He's not a rock. And so, I, I don't think this name has as much to do with, man, look at that guy. He's just a rock. No, he has a foot-shaped mouth because he keeps sticking his foot in there. That's that's Peter. He's not a rock. And I think Jesus here specifically gives him a name to remind him, especially when he leaves, I'm building on you, Peter. You and your your brothers here. I'm building on you guys. You guys are the rock, the firm foundation. So we see Simon. We see James and John. They're brothers. Um, you see that interesting note that he gave them the name Boanerges or Boanerges. Uh, the commentators are kind of clueless as to what that actually means in Hebrew, but Mark tells us that somehow it means sons of thunder. Not sure exactly what that means, but it probably means these guys are kind of a lot like Peter. They're ready to open their mouths really quickly. They're ready to say a lot of things. You'll see um, in the book of Luke, they ask Jesus if they can call down fire on these people because they don't accept Jesus in the town. Can you imagine that? Hey, Jesus, can we send fire on this town? (laughs) That's impetuous. (laughs) All right? That's kind of like wrong authority, wrong thinking. Jesus, can I send fire down on these people? No. No, you can't do that. That's not why I came. You guys are missing the message. Later on, they with their mom, which is really lame, come up to Jesus and ask for to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom. Can I sit next to you when you're ruling and reigning? I'm just a mere fisherman, but... You see, these guys are kind of impetuous, and I think that may be part of why Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. You see, Andrew, which is always a good name. Philip, not bad, okay. Bartholomew, I don't think there's any Bartholomews here. Matthew, we've seen, is equated with Levi, the tax collector. Okay, Thomas, we, we know him as Doubting Thomas um, from later on in the Gospels. And we see James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian. Now, if you have an NIV, I think it says Simon the Zealot. And this word is f- taken from the Hebrew word that is equivalent to the Greek word zelotes, zealot. Okay, but Canaanian doesn't mean he's from Cana or from Canaan. It means he's zealous. And it could mean one of two things. Either he's zealous for the law Okay, so he's kind of like a Pharisee. He loves the law. Or he's associated with a political group of zealots that want to overthrow Rome. Okay, either way, he's going to have a hard time fitting into this group. Okay, if he's a zealot, a political zealot, and hates Rome, he and Matthew aren't going to get along very well. Right, remember Matthew, Levi, he was working for the Roman government. So Simon the zealot wants to kill and overthrow, and now he's in the same group, Posse, with Jesus, with his enemy. So, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you calling these two guys? They're not going to get along. They're not going to be good bunk mates. Okay, One of them's going to get up and stab the other guy in the middle of the night. This is not a good way to gather around yourself disciples. And last, we see Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Judas is always last in the list. Um, Judas' name may indicate that he's the only disciple from Judea and not from Galilee. Um, whatever the case... Jesus, get this, He summoned those whom He willed, so He summoned, He chose, He called the one who was going to betray Him. He included Judas in His inner circle on purpose. If you knew the future, you wouldn't do that. Like if you owned a company, if you owned a business, I know the future. If this guy's going to betray me and pilfer all my money. Come on in. Put you on the executive council. That's what Jesus seems to be doing here. What an amazing, amazing display of Jesus' compassion and love. He chose to bring this man who we knew would betray him and steal their money and brought him in and hung out with him for three years. Just think of that. When, when Judas betrays Jesus at the end of the book, he's been with him for three years. He's been with him. Judas has been sent out to preach and to cast out demons on behalf of Jesus. That's why he's at the end of the list. Well, we have to close, but as we see this amazing passage, I think there are some implications here. I think Jesus here sets a pattern. So Jesus is being followed by thousands of people, and he pinpoints and chooses 12 guys to be really close to him. And as the book goes on, Jesus gathers these guys, and they go away. They go on camping trips and they get away from people and Jesus teaches them. When Jesus starts teaching parables, he tells the parables to everybody and then takes the 12 guys and tell them what the parable means. When he's preaching, he preaches to everybody and then he explains what it means. In fact, he reveals certain things to these 12 that he doesn't reveal to anybody else. These are Jesus's guys. They're the men that he called to be with him. If you go to Second Timothy, turn in your Bible's, close to the end of your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Which, sidebar, come on Tuesday nights for Reality Check and we're going to start studying 2 Timothy this Tuesday. Okay, uh, 2 Timothy 2. Paul is talking to Timothy. Look at verse 1. You then my child, he loves Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also Paul is taking Jesus's model of discipleship and saying Paul I mean Timothy I called you to follow me I'll tell you everything I know I sent you out to preach just like Jesus sent out the disciples now what I want you to do Timothy I'm about to have my head chopped off so I'm not going to be around for long so when I'm gone Timothy call some guys around you with what you saw in me teach to them and gather guys who are faithful so that they'll teach other guys and that those guys, the implication is, will teach other guys, and teach other guys, and teach other guys, and somehow, 2,000 years later, here we are. I think this is the model that Jesus sets up. Turn the page, or two pages maybe, to Titus. Paul writing to another one of his disciples, Titus, the young man he took under his wing, a Gentile. Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young, younger men to be self-controlled. He's calling the older generation to bring up the younger ones. They need your help. So unabashedly, older people, and I not say old, I said older people, <laughs> You have responsibility. We need your help and your wisdom. Ann Nelson this morning was sharing with me all this great stuff. I have a little baby girl. She's starting to walk. Ah! Ann, help! (laughs) So Ann's telling me all this stuff to do. Now that is a very practical thing and it's a very easy way to see how that could transfer to the church. There are young men and young women in this church that are dying for some of you older men and older women to talk to them to hug them, to take them out to coffee, to dinner, to lunch, to talk with them, to train them. If we don't do this, the church will not survive. In a very detailed study, Christian Smith, who is one of the top Christian sociologists, in a detailed survey said that the number one reason that young people leave their church is because they don't feel connected to older people in the church. That is the number one reason that the younger people are leaving. Because there's no connection to the older people. So please, older men and older women, take it upon yourself to disciple us. We need your help. Especially you that have let your children go out of the nest. There's a lot more here that need your help. Your job's not done. Now, young people, you don't get off the hook. Because sometimes the older people won't come and find you. So go find them. Okay? Maybe maybe an older person in this church wants to, but can't get up the courage to do it. You get up the courage. Go talk to an older person in the church and say, help me. Help me. Teach me. Guide me. I need you to help. We want to see this intergenerational blend. We need that kind of help. So you have some implication questions there. The second two, who might I disciple? Now, if you're in high school or college... This doesn't mean you only have older people that disciple you. There's a wanna. There's children's ministry. There are little kids. They might live in the same house as you, maybe even the same room. You can disciple them by word and deed. And then the last question is, have I been with Jesus? Have I been with Jesus consistently, meaningfully, and do others know it? Can you imagine those guys saying, wow, these guys have been with Jesus. What a compliment that would be to us. Wow, you've been with Jesus. The way you think, the way you talk, the way you act indicates that you have been with Jesus. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to, Dive into your word. Lord, I pray this morning for the believers in this room that this would have a profound impact on us. We know these principles, we know these things, and yet we get caught up in our Southern California, Orange County lifestyle where it's busy, 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 busy all the time. Lord, help us to prioritize. God, I pray that you would help the older men and the older women in this church to seize the opportunity to be the courageous, bold one and to take the younger people in this church under their wings to rebuke them, to correct them, to encourage them, to love them. Lord, and may we be with each other, and may we be with your Son. Jesus, we want to be more like you. We want to love you better. We want to love you more. We want others to see that we have been with you. So Father, would you do the work? Would you spur us on and help this to become a reality at Village Bible Church? In Jesus' name, amen.